You're listening to the Small Biz Ahead podcast, brought to you by The Hartford. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Hartford Small Biz Ahead podcast. You are listening to Gene Marks. My co-host, John Adaconis here, is fast asleep and laying off on the job. No, I'm just kidding. He was unable to make this conversation today, um, and so I do miss him, but that's okay. We have a great guest that we're going to be speaking to about everything you should be knowing about uh, the potential, the proposed infrastructure plans that are coming our way out of Washington. And, uh, you know, we're really looking forward to a good conversation with that. So uh, let's get into that if we can. My guest is, is Kip Eideberg. Kip is the Senior Vice President for Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kip, you know what? I think I, I'm pretty sure I spoke to your group a few years ago. Um, I love associations that do stuff that sounds so boring like equipment manufacturing and yet make up like, you know, you guys make up like, you know, one of the many associations uh, that make up the core of this country's economy. So thank you, first of all, for joining me. You're very welcome, Gene. And I appreciate you setting the bar low here. Uh, that's usually not the case. So I, I will try to be not boring, uh, which, uh, you know, hopefully I will succeed at. But I, I really do appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about infrastructure. Yeah, it's funny, it's just funny because, you know, like, you know, if I was Conan O'Brien, you know, I would be hosting some celebrity, you know, or, or whatever. Like here it's like, OK, we're talking to buddies from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. And, um, and it, it just makes me laugh because when people first hear that, they're like, oh, you know, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. But in the end, I mean, what you guys do is really, really important stuff. So. First of all, tell us a little bit about the association and what you do. And then for our listeners, we're going to get into, you know, your thoughts on on the coming infrastructure legislation. So tell us about AEM. You bet. So the Association of Equipment Manufacturers represents off-road equipment manufacturers and suppliers. And in the United States, uh, our industry supports about 2.8 million jobs. That's one out of every eight U.S. manufacturing jobs. So we are a big piece of the manufacturing sector, uh, contribute roughly $288 billion to the economy every year. But to, to put it differently, Gene, maybe perhaps a little less uh, boring, the men and women of our industry make the equipment that builds, powers, and feeds the world, which is something right. that we're very proud of. So, you know, if anything you see on the farm, anything you see, uh, you know, on the construction site next to the road, you know, all that equipment is made by our member companies. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's a crucial organization with with a lot of companies that do something very you know important um, for the economy. And and I'm I'm glad that you're joining us. And listen, I mean, I know your members do things like they they manufacture loaders and pavers and excavators and cranes and all sorts of things that are used in any area of construction, right? And and manufacturing. And right. and so, you know, are your members excited about this potential infrastructure bill? Yeah, they, they sure are. And, and I've been doing this long enough to remember when when infrastructure week was not a punchline. And I have not seen this much positive momentum for a comprehensive infrastructure package in the last 10 years. And, and so I think with, without jinxing it, I think that this might just be the year when we will finally see Republicans and Democrats coming together. Uh, around a proposal that will make a significant investment in our infrastructure, not just roads and bridges, Gene, that those are important, but other things too, like rural broadband expansion, uh, like locks and dams, waterways, ports, 
everything that is crucial to a strong economy. And it's crucial to a lot of our members being able to compete in the global economy. Right. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been talking about the infrastructure bill for a while. You know, I, I do, um, you know, I, Kip, I do a lot of writing as well, you know, besides for the Hartford, I write for, for other national publication. I cover public policy and infrastructure has always been a bipartisan issue. Um, it's always sort of hit the wall a little bit uh, be- between how much is going to be spent and, and what defines infrastructure. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's, it's really going to happen. I think it's the, a bill is going to come through. Um, maybe it won't be as much as what the president is asking, but it's going to be super significant uh, between now and the midterm. So what does that mean, you know, Kip, for small businesses? What does it mean for your members and their customers in the construction businesses and rural and manufacturing communities? Well, we, we believe that investing in our, in our nation's infrastructure should, first of all, not be a partisan issue. So I appreciate your optimism, too. Uh, hopefully that rubs off on some of the lawmakers in, in Washington and they can get this done. You know, it is just common sense. We, we need to tend to our infrastructure. We all rely on it. Uh, we cannot compete in the global economy if we don't have a state-of-the-art infrastructure. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick example. You mentioned small businesses. Now, we have about a 1,000 member companies. You know, some of them are large multinational corporations that you, you, you and your listeners will be very familiar with, Caterpillar, John Deere, Komatsu, Volvo, et cetera. But the vast majority are smaller, mid-sized uh, businesses. Many of them are, are family-owned. And I was just down in the Greenville, South Carolina area. Uh, and there's a great example there of how and why this is so important. Now, the Port of Savannah uh, and the Port of Charleston are both crucial uh, to the ability of small any size businesses in that part of the country to compete, right? They get parts and components in through those ports uh, and then they get finished products out uh, to the US but also to markets around the world. And so those two ports have been modernized over time and in fact, they've now put in a a, a rail line from the port of Charleston to Greenville where there is now an inland port. Now that's been great for many of our small member companies in that area. You know, they make pavers, they make rollers, they make excavators all the, the stuff that's needed to build infrastructure. But the rail lines, the tracks have not been updated. Hmm. And so they are facing congestion. They're having to single track. Trains are sitting for hours just to allow another train to pass. And so to me, that sort of captures why this is so important and why it helps not just our industry, but businesses overall. It, you know, It is just critical that we can have the roads, the bridges, the rail lines, the ports, et cetera, um, that we need in order to compete. Otherwise, it all it all falls apart. And so, you know, you talked about the value. Well, there's the value. But then there's also the trickle-down impact. So for every dollar invested in infrastructure, somewhere between 2 and $3 is generated in economic activity around the country over time. And so that investment in infrastructure, not only does it ensure that we have the infrastructure assets needed to compete and to remain competitive, but it also is going to create millions of jobs. It's going to jumpstart our economy. It's going to put us on a path back to full recovery. So now that's why we just got to get this done right now, Gene. So, you know, Kip, it, you know, as you and I are speaking right now, and it's like the end of May, um, the, the president's proposal he's been discussing with, with the Republicans, and um, it, it's down to just a mere $1.7 trillion. Um, so he shaved it down a few, you know, a few billion. I mean, what's a few billion between friends, right? Um, but that's right. a, it's a lot of it's a, it's a, it's a lot of money and you know a 1.7 trainers. What does that mean, Kip, for your members? You know, I mean, you hear that there's an infrastructure bill. They're gonna say it gets passed and it's a 1.7 trillion dollar infrastructure bill to 
uh, you know, to rebuild our roads, roads and our airports and our bridges and like you said, railroad tracks and, you know, OK, that's great. How how can your members take advantage of that? And how can businesses that are in rural and manufacturing communities, businesses in the construction businesses, how can they profit from this? Well, that, that's a great question. And, and before we get there, because you did mention the 1.7 and we did have a little bit of breaking news earlier today, the, the Senate Republicans uh, came out with their latest counteroffer, $928 billion. Right. Uh, and so we've, we've gone from 2.3, right? That was what they're about, depending on your definition of infrastructure that was in the American Jobs Plan. You know, I think the Republicans first came back with something in the 500 billion range, then 1.7, like you said, now 928, right? So I think they are inching slowly but surely towards some sort of compromise, right? And we'll probably end up somewhere in the 900 billion to a trillion dollars, which, you know, is, you know, an astronomical sum of money. And so what, what does that mean then, right? What does it mean for our, for our member companies? I mean, first of all, I think it's very basic level, you know, if we can get this money out to state and local government, and it should be said that, you know, passing the bill is going to be challenging, getting the, the, the money approved is challenging, but we also need to couple that with some permitting reform, uh, some, some reduction of red tape, some streamlining, right, so that those dollars don't just sit for years and years and years before they're right. deployed. But assuming we can get that done and we can get them, you know, out working for us, Obviously, we're going to see lots of new projects popping up. You know, roads are going to be rebuilt and modernized. Bridges will be will will be will be repaired. Hopefully, broadband will be deployed. And obviously, that all means you know, hopefully, more more sale of equipment, which means we need to make more equipment, which means you know, our members will stand to benefit, and they'll create more jobs in in communities across the country. So there's that sort of direct benefit to to our industry. But I think the broader benefit. It's almost as important. We talked about um, global supply chains and, and the need to have an infrastructure that is competitive in the global economy before. You know, the other piece, I think that's going to have a direct impact, not just for our members' businesses, but also their quality of life in general is, is broadband. You know, roads and bridges tend to be in the spotlight whenever infrastructure comes up. But access to affordable and reliable high-speed broadband is, is critical uh, economic to economic opportunity, to job creation, education, civic engagement, right, in communities across the, the United States, especially in rural areas. And, you know, one, one out of every five Americans, you know, roughly live in a rural area. For our industry, it's one in three. So, so we are closely tied to rural America. We are part of rural America. And the reality is that millions of Americans in rural areas don't have access to broadband internet, which leaves too many hardworking Americans at a disadvantage. And so, you know, given the importance today of connectivity, uh, banding access to, to high-speed internet uh, will ensure that all Americans can, can participate in the economy. And so I think that benefit uh, cannot be overstated. It's, it's critical to, to our industry. And, you know, again, many of our member companies are, are those small family-owned businesses, uh, you know, they don't have the resources that the large multinational corporations do. And, you know, if they don't have access to reliable, affordable sure. broadband, they can't do business. Well, okay. So, that. so let, let, I mean, let, let's talk about broadband for a minute because it's, it, it, you know, I, just specifically, and again, if honestly, Kip, if you don't, if you don't, don't know the answers to this, just say so, it's fine because it's a little bit into the weeds, but um, you're right about broadband, you know, it is, and it's always been a big thing about getting, you know, broadband out to all areas of the country. It's, it's critical uh, for economic development in this country. So, okay, the the bill gets approved, uh, this infrastructure bill. There's a certain amount of money that's going to be allocated for broadband as it is, right? Um, does that money, right. you know, as far as you know, does that does that money go to the states and then the states are going to be responsible for 
their broadband construction or is it coming directly from the federal government? And then the second part of that is that once once that's determined where the money's going, then you know the, the government's not going to build this broadband. They're going to, I guess, they're going to contract out to companies to do that. Correct. So does that mean you should right. be, you know, should I be if I was in the this business where I could help in the construction of broadband? Should I be applying to become a you know a, a you know a, to do business with my state? Or should I be a federal business? Do you know Do you know what I'm saying? What are your thoughts on that? No, those are those are good questions. So to the first one, typically okay. when it comes to to these transportation infrastructure, right? right? Which, by the way, you know, they're also Congress is also moving a separate bill to simply just fund roads and bridges, highways and transit. Uh, you know, which is another three hundred billion dollars on top of this other package that we're talking about. So there's, you know, just you mentioned earlier about these numbers, right? What's a few hundred billion dollars between friends? You know, yeah, not, not not a lot, I guess. Uh, but typically, when it comes to transportation infrastructure, you know, the money uh, is dispersed from the federal government in the form of grants to state and local governments, and right. and you know, that's not the entire pot of money that they have. Obviously, they have their own. Uh, funds as well, uh, and we saw during the pandemic, right, that those were were increasingly stressed because they, you know, they are raised through, you know, through a gas tax, through a sales tax, and and you know, people didn't drive as much, didn't buy as much during the pandemic. So you know, you get the federal piece, and then they get their own piece, and then you now they've got their pot of money, and then you know, it's up to state and local then to uh, to approve projects and to approve funding, and then obviously that gets contracted out. So let's um, so let me let me jump in right there. So then so whether it's yeah. state, whether you're building roads or the building broadband, which I think is a lot of the same. So the money goes to the states in the form of grants. The states then turn around and say, okay, uh, we're now going to like approve projects to build new roads or to build broadband. Uh, the states don't do it themselves, so I'm assuming they contract that out to private companies. Um, and I'm assuming the private companies are probably for the most part, you know, a lot of the same vendors that they've used in the past, mostly larger companies. Is that is that true? And and if so, where you know how how can your you, you mentioned about small and medium sized businesses? How can they take advantage of that? Yeah, no, and and I should say you know the the, the process that each state uses right is it's going to differ, and obviously there's there are still federal projects too. Uh, right. you know, the vast majority of projects tend to be state projects, you know, using federal funds, but the, the federal government does also you know do some some maintenance and repair of infrastructure and and even you know construction of new infrastructure. But uh, no, it, it's not necessarily just to large companies. I mean, you know, there there are plenty of small you know, contractors out there, you know, family-owned businesses, much like there are family-owned businesses who make equipment. And so, you know, for them, they're keeping an eye on this and they're, they're, they're looking, you know, if I, if I, let's say, let's go back to, you know, to one of our members, right? If I'm a small company building pavers and rollers, you know, I'm looking at, okay, what does the landscape look like for the next two to five years? How much money do state local expect to get in the form of grants? What is currently available? Uh, and that's going to obviously inform you know, my business decisions, how much, you know, product do I want to, to manufacture? How much product will my dealers and, and some of the rental houses and other equipment operators, how much will they demand? And so obviously, you no, know, nothing is perfect, right? It's hard to forecast uh, and do it accurately, but this is going to inform, uh, you know, their, their production decisions. And so, you know, again, if I'm that small equipment manufacturer, if I'm thinking, well, look, you know, well, it looks like we're going to reauthorize Federal Surface Transportation Programs, $300 billion over five years, and maybe they'll pass this big bill, another trillion dollars. I'm going to start uh, drawing up my production. I'm going to start making more equipment because I'm anticipating these projects to, to come through. And that means then hiring more people, um, you know, maybe expanding my footprint, investing in, in new equipment. So, you know, it, optimism begets optimism, and that's what we see in our industry. Uh, 
And so, uh, you know, a Makes lot sense. of a lot of a lot of that will happen once this bill is passed. Makes sense. You know, one of the things that are part of this, and and again, I don't. The, like we said this before we started recording about don't want to get too political, so we're not going to do that. But I know there is some debate about non-infrastructure, you know, spending that's being part of the infrastructure bill. But there's, you know, the, the definitions of that really um, is is. Uh, is, is up to you know, individuals to figure out what, what's considered to be infrastructure or not. One of those big things is workforce development. And I know that that's, you know, that's a critical part of infrastructure. Um, can, you, you know, can, can you talk a little bit about you know, where you see this money being spent for workforce development? And listen, skilled labor is so critical. How, how can this potentially help um, your small and medium-sized members, manufacturers, um, get more, you know, more good skilled labor to fill those open positions? Uh, it's a great question. And, and, and on the political side, I, I, I live in Washington, everything is, is political. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I, you know, plus yeah, these days, I think it's political anywhere you go, unfortunately, uh, in, in our country. Uh, but, you know, just very quickly on that point, I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Gene. You know, lots of discussion, obviously, about what constitutes infrastructure. I think some people are, are, uh, are applying a very generous definition of the term. Uh, to try to squeeze in a few pet uh, policy priorities, you know that's just the way Washington works. I think the thing not to 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 forget here is that just because something is an infrastructure per se doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad policy idea. It, it could be a bad policy idea, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And so, you know, what we've been telling Congress and the White House is that you know, in the interest of getting something done, and in the interest of getting a bipartisan common sense bill done, you know, let's let's take out. The, the, those policy priorities that aren't, you know, aren't part of, you know, most people's definition of infrastructure. We can debate those later. We can move those as freestanding bills if, if, if there's enough support, right? Sure. Uh, but let's focus on infrastructure first and foremost. So just to, just a note on that. But you know, when it comes to workforce um, development, obviously that is perhaps, you know, our our industry's biggest challenge right now. We are creating more jobs than we can fill. Uh, we're looking at a shortage. Uh, Let's see here, about 4 million uh, manufacturing workers are leaving the workforce over the next 10 years, um, probably only going to be able to um, to fill 1.6 million of those, or replace 1.6 million of those. So we're looking at, you know, two two and a half million uh, uh, positions that will remain unfilled. And so obviously we can't take advantage of all this money if we don't have the workforce Um to to uh, to build, you know, not just equipment, by the way, Gene, but you know, people who are contractors, road builders, uh, you know, they they also they also need higher to higher skilled labor, and and so I think there's an opportunity here uh, when we talk about infrastructure, to and and I think you know the, the administration deserves a fair bit of credit here because they have included in their proposal uh, quite a bit of money, uh, originally a hundred billion dollars towards uh, closing that skills gap. That means more money for community colleges that have programs, uh, you know, that provide, you know, in-demand training uh, to, to train welders, machinists, fabricators, painters, et cetera. It includes money for career technical schools uh, to expand, you know, their training opportunities. It, it includes grants uh, for, for businesses uh, to partner with these schools and, mm-hmm. and so share their know-how. Uh, and it includes money to educate young men and women about careers in manufacturing, because the reality is that too many of them see it as a as a less than great career path. And and you know we got to change that perception. Uh, otherwise, we're never going to fill these jobs. So you know, long long answer. But if we cannot address the workforce problem, close the skills gap at the same time as we're going to make an investment in infrastructure, 
we're going to miss out on a lot of the benefits that will come with this money. Got it. All right. Listen, at the time that we have left, I, I do want to talk a little bit um, about taxes only because it's what, 20, 25% of our, of our income. Um, and I know that yeah. <laughs> um, you wrote a great piece in the Hill actually last month um, about the R&D tax credit. And um, you, you had some suggestions um, and, and I, I thought maybe I could you know, ask you if you, can, if you can share what you wrote with us in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we talked about the need for bipartisanship earlier on. And, and I think that this is actually sort of an, a good segue uh, to to another issue that that actually enjoys bipartisan support. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, research and development. Um, it's something that both Democrats and Republicans are focusing on right now in terms of making meaningful progress on legislation, in this case in particular, to protect two tax provisions that not only would encourage or continue to encourage American innovation, manufacturing competitiveness, but to ensure the long-term competitiveness and growth of, of our industry. And this is particularly important for, for smaller uh, and medium-sized companies, but particularly those smaller companies who do not have you know, the, the research and development budgets of a, of a larger competitive. And, and currently, not to get too far into the weeds, Eugene, but currently businesses can immediately deduct the cost of new investments, uh, including yeah. costs associated with R&D, um, uh, to, to amortize or deduct, if you will, costs over five or 15 year period. And, and those two tax provisions are set to expire uh, at the end of this year. They were part of the grand bargain um, around tax reform um, a couple of years ago. This was one way to pay for it, or one way at least for it to be somewhat affordable uh, is that they were going to sunset uh, these two provisions. And so unless lawmakers act, uh, what, what does it mean for our industry? It means that equipment manufacturers and, and other businesses too, to be fair, will see a significant tax increase um, on, on their investment. And, and, and I, I cited a, a stat in, in my piece, which I think is telling, uh, according to the Tax Foundation, uh, you know, forcing new businesses or forcing businesses rather to amortize new R&D costs would be a tax hike of about $100 billion over the next decade. Wow. And, you know, the old saying, uh, how does it go? You don't create jobs by taxing job creators. Well, right. That's what we're looking to do here if we don't change uh, the law. Right. And really, it's not, and you're not really proposing changing the law, but you're uh, just extending the law, correct? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. That's right. It, 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 is, it is just making sure that, that, that businesses can continue to benefit from these two tax provisions. And look, our industry, and we're not alone, certainly, but our industry owes much of its success and in, in global competitiveness to, to research and development. Yeah. Uh, you know, many of our members, uh, that's not fair, all of our members, but, but, you know, all of our members spend, you know, a significant amount of time and energy trying to figure out how to improve their existing product um, offerings, how to solve sure. market problems, how to help their customers, uh, you know, be more competitive, more successful. You know, we've seen, you know, the move towards what we call digital iron, which, which means, you know, equipment that comes uh, equipped with, you know, sensors, computers, you know, the technology that allows them to be more efficient, more precise, more safe, right? All of this is rooted in research and development. And, and if we cannot make, continue to keep R&D affordable and incentivize companies to invest in it, you know, we're, we're going to lose out uh, to our global competitors. Uh, right. You know, just look at, look at what the Chinese have done on semiconductors. Right. Right. Very true. It's very true. So, okay. So let, let me leave with this, um, Kip. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've talked clearly a lot about the infrastructure bill um, and the fact that, you know, I think we both believe that something's going to happen. Uh, maybe we're being naive, but I, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, it could be anywhere in the, the trillion dollar range, maybe even a little bit more than that. 
um, and it will have a big impact for manufacturers, particularly those in the construction businesses, rural, you know, rural areas as well. So that's a real opportunity that we really have to be keeping our mind, you know, our eyes on. Um, and, and also, you know, we did just speak about, you know, you know, like a major tax provision that has expired at the end of this year for the R&D tax credit that would impact manufacturing in the hope that that can get extended. So let me, one final question for you. I mean, we're talking now to manufacturers. Between now and, and the end of the year, do you, I mean, you're, listen, your job is you're, you're looking at everything going on in D.C. that's affecting your members. Is, do you have any issues that you see, any potential issues uh, that that are out there that could affect, from a legislative standpoint, could be affecting manufacturers in this country over the next couple of years that we should be aware of. And what I, you know, tax wise, labor wise, or any other regulatory wise that we should be keeping our eyes on. A great question. To your point earlier about perhaps being too naive, uh, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to when you live and work in Washington because otherwise, you know, it gets a little depressing uh, getting out of bed. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, I think the, the, the issue for, for from our perspective, um, Gene, that, that is perhaps going to make or break our industry, it's not so much legislative, although there certainly is a legislative fix to it, it, it it's the rising cost and shortages of steel. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me just take two minutes to explain the impact here. Uh, I looked at, up the prices this morning in you know, a hot gold coil. Currently, if you can buy it in the U.S., 1450 to 1500 a metric ton. It's 900 in Europe. 900. Mm-hmm. So we're looking here at a five to six hundred dollar price difference. And it's not like the cost of labor is lower in Europe. It's not like they face you know a lighter legis- regulatory pressure, right? And so. That puts our industry at a huge competitive disadvantage in, yeah. in terms of competing with, with European manufacturers. On top of that, uh, what explains this? Well, uh, that's the million-dollar question. If you would think that if the prices were this high, and the demand certainly is through the roof, that you know steel production would be at an all-time high. Sure. Well, it's not. In fact, it's actually lower than it was before the pandemic. You know, a lot of mills are running at 70% capacity, maybe 60% capacity. And sure. so, you know, as, as someone who works in the manufacturing space, you know, I, I, I am sympathetic to the argument that, you know, we should ensure that U.S. manufacturing, regardless of the product, you know, is the strongest in the world, that we can compete against anyone. Uh, but at the same time, when you're looking at an input that is critical to so many other sectors, you're facing persistent shortages and rising costs that are not keeping up with the rest of the world. Something has to give. And so you asked about legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, this goes back to those tariffs um, that were put in place a few years ago, whether it was on steel and aluminum, whether it was on Chinese inputs, tariffs are taxes. You know, yeah. I've said that a million times about saying that, right? There, yeah. You know this. They're taxes on American businesses. They're taxes on consumers. And so I think it's time for, for Congress and the White House to take a look, particularly at tariffs on steel, and say, you know, are, is this still a useful tool? Uh, does it help us with the Chinese? I mean, I would argue that if we're trying to work with our friends and allies to put pressure on the Chinese, mm. putting tariffs on their steel and aluminum isn't going to make us any friends. And so that's to us is, is, is the biggest challenge. And, uh, you know, if things don't change, I think you're going to see some, some smaller equipment manufacturers possibly, you know, have to draw down production, uh, perhaps make some tougher choices. And then just to end it on a, on an infrastructure note, since that's where we started, Rebuilding our nation's infrastructure is going to require an enormous amount of steel. A trillion dollars is a lot of money, but if we're overpaying for steel, those dollars aren't going to go nearly as far. So 
that's going to be a problem too as, as that money starts to flow. Uh, will infrastructure projects become too expensive? Uh, I hope not, but you never know. So, you know, uh, optimistic that something will get done on infrastructure this year. Like you said, uh, cost of steel, steel shortages, uh, less optimistic there, but it's something that Congress and the White House has to address. I love it. It's a great point. Yeah, it's just funny because I, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I do a lot of writing and as I'm, I'm, you're talking, um, you know, people really underestimate the, the, the cost of steel and the cost of these tariffs um, and what they're, you know, what impact that has on infrastructure and the cost overall to manufacturers in this country. And I think more attention needs to be given to it. So I appreciate you talking about it. It's very, very interesting stuff and very important. Kip Eideberg is the Senior Vice President for Government and Industry Relations for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kip, first of all, thank you for joining me. This is just a great conversation. What is the association's website? Uh, that is AEM, or Association of Equipment Manufacturers, .org. And uh, I really appreciate your time today, Gene, and, and, and just the opportunity to have a a, a serious policy conversation, which is very rare these days in Washington. So thank you so much for, for the time and the opportunity. You got it. I'm glad you joined. I think it really impacts a lot of our listeners as well as well as many manufacturers around the country. So everyone, listen, if you, know, if, if you want more information and help in, in running your business advice and tips, please visit us at the Hartford Small Biz Ahead site. It's sba.thehartford.com or uh, smallbizahead.com. My name is Gene Martz, and on behalf of my co-host, John Adakonis, thank you very much for joining us on the Small Biz Ahead podcast. We hope you enjoyed this great conversation, and we look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Take care.